0: Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Ashang lamty A globally recognized authority on diversity and inclusion in the workplace, Jonathan has a PhD from the London School of Economics, which allows him to bring the academic rigor that his FTSE 100 clients expect. Using a compelling blend of case studies, cutting-edge research and global perspectives, Jonathan's original insights help business leaders to build inclusive organizations where everyone belongs and everyone performs. He is currently writing a book to support his mission to help 1 million people around the world to make the workplace inclusive. Jonathan, welcome to the Workplace Podcast. William, thank
1: you for having me. You introduced me better than I could introduce myself.
0: Well, it's all true. And what I want to do is build on that I suppose mission of yours or goal of yours is to make the workplace inclusive. And the reason I invited you onto the podcast is uh, I suppose I want to support you in that. And I often think of Irish culture, how the population has changed over the last uh, couple of decades. The workforce again is more diverse than ever before. And really what I'd like to do is educate myself and our listeners really about more about diversity and inclusion and the the various different aspects. So when we were talking earlier, I was talking about Irish culture, the many different facets. And one particular anecdote that I was sharing with you is when we're meeting people new, wherever they're from, they could be from Galway or Carlow or Dublin or Cork or Kerry, Tipperary, whatever. And when we meet someone for the first time, a major aspect of Irish culture is where are you from? courier people and they go, let me let me place, you know, do you know such and such? Because Ireland is such a small island, you know, we probably do know somebody belonging to them. And that whole thing of where do I place you? And then I'm just thinking about, you know, if you had a different background, well, where does that leave you? Even though there's well-meaning behind it, it's really, I want to build a connection with you. That can be somewhat unhelpful then, can't it? Absolutely. And I
1: think, William, what you're talking about is, it's a strategy that we use as people to try and make sense of the world and people that we're connecting with, right? So when you meet someone, you're trying to understand, as you said, and I love that phrase he used, how can I place you? So there's good and bad in that, right? Because if Mm. I'm going to place you, I'm going to make you, you're going to give me some information where you're from, maybe your surname, Where do you live? As you said, who are your people? And then I'm going to draw conclusions. I imagine the average Irish person who you're talking about in this anecdote will draw conclusions about what they've said. Now, the problem is if you're not able to move from that place or if those conclusions that the person draws aren't realistic. So this could be political. It could be religious. It could be about class. And you know, especially in Ireland, the intersection of these things have very powerful implications. So I do think it's important for us to realize and think whenever we're engaging with anyone, we need to understand it's all about making sense of the environment, but we don't wanna be too constrained by that. And that's what a lot of this is talking about when we're talking about diversity and inclusion. So, and maybe to give a little bit of clarity about what I mean when I use those terms, because I always say diversity and inclusion, two of the most used and abused words in the workplace and this is the workplace podcast so we need to make sure that we're getting this right so I like to think of diversity in three ways so number one is a management approach because you know we're talking about the workplace primarily a management approach that recognizes that as individuals we have differences and there is value in those differences the second is what we call surface level diversity. So these genuinely tend to be the differences that we would recognize physically in another person. It's not always physical, but it's as a shortcut, let's think of it like that. And then we've got deep level diversity. This is the things that we can't see. Maybe your intelligence, your values, your principles, your attitude to work. So what I find, and going back to your idea about where, where can I place you? People will be be looking for these surface level diversity elements, but they really want to draw attention to the deep level. So if they say you are from this neighborhood or you visit this church or, or this is your surname, you are that type of person. And they're going to say, well, maybe you think like this, you believe this, you behave like this. And so it's always I always find it interesting. It's that relationship to the deep level diversity that people are really interested in, and they assume it. And once you're there, by the way, it's very difficult to move. This is why you hear people talking about stereotypes all of the
0: time. There is a positive intention for people to do that. It's to build trust, it's to build a relationship. It's kind of like we have these filters to figure out, you know, can I can I trust you there? So when we move beyond that surface level diversity, then go to that deeper one is this what we're we're trying to do is, is try to say, OK, is this someone that I could I want to be friends with or I can trust? What is it behind that?
1: I think I think it's a double edged sword. And I, I think it depends on the intention of the individual, because for the most part, we're not actively my experiences, particularly just with everyday people. They're not actively going out thinking, I want to discriminate. I want to cause harm. Really, most people are looking for shortcuts for their own experience. Once again, let's let's talk about the workplace. You meet someone at work, for the most part, you're trying to get on with a job and you think that you're trying to do the right thing. Let's, you know, let's pretend we've got a good actor here, right? someone who just wants to get on with their role. But if we look at your team and we see that actually it's only one type of person, maybe it's because you're not willing to explore and understand, because going back to what you said, you've placed people. And once you meet someone, you place them in a particular way and you think, okay, I'm not going to hire this person because I know people from this neighborhood don't behave well, aren't hard workers or don't believe what I believe. Vote different to me. You know, we've got conflicting religious beliefs. So this can be a challenge. So it's really important for us as individuals in the workplace to recognize, you know, our own biases, our own preferences. Because when we talk about inclusion, we say it's once again all about the business a systematic business strategy to ensure that everyone can reach their full potential. They share the same advantages and benefits. And the three words we use, everyone can perform, everyone can belong, everyone can reach their potential. So everyone can perform. Are you making sure that everyone is... And, you know, to use a political example, um, not too political, more of a theoretical political example... Um, I did politics at university and they talked about freedom and liberty. Yeah. Freedom is, tends to be freedom from oppression, hindrances. So if you think about inclusion in the workplace, you're free from people trying to stop you from doing stuff. You want to do better, but sometimes people get in the way. They're not going to give you a fair chance, not going to give you the promotion, even though you've done the work. On the flip side, you've got liberty, which liberty tends to be liberty to do anything. Yeah. So then you've, you're allowed to progress. You're allowed to move forward. So it's two subtle nuances about the same issue, inclusion. And I think that's really important. Then the next thing is belonging. I find, once again, it's another word that, what does it actually mean? We've all got different ideas about it. It's useful to think about belonging in terms of self-acceptance. Well, sorry, acceptance from others. Are you accepted in the workplace? If you've been placed in the way that you just described, in Ireland, are you accepted for in that place? Does that place allow you to progress, to contribute? Mm. That Can you get along and everyone just appreciate you for who you are? Yeah. Belonging implies that that's the case. If not, then we've got an issue with acceptance there. It's a more useful word, I think, in a workplace context. And then the last one is reaching their potential. I like to think I've got this very naive idea that Work and the workplace can allow us as individuals and everyone else to reach their potential. Is your organisation allowing you to do that? If not, we need to think about why. Because if individuals
0: reach their potential, the organisation should as well. This conversation could go in so many directions. When you talk about potential, we talk about hiring practices and promotion practices. And I want to return to that sense of belonging then. with I really like that is do I belong here or do I, do I feel a belonging or connection to the group? And that goes back to that whole notion of let's assume there's good actors here. Okay. Which reminds me that that belonging pieces is is, uh, posters that used to be around where it says no dogs, no blacks and no Irish need to apply for a job or, you know, entrance into, you know, a public house or a restaurant or whatever, And I think Irish people are particularly sensitive to that fact of discrimination. And this is where uh, I suppose, let me place you, is there's a positive intention behind that, I believe, for a lot of people. And then it brings us the notion of microaggressions. And how do people navigate that, especially if that can be unhelpful, where some people might feel like that they're being placed into a, a box or a label or something like that. How do we, how do we navigate that now? If, if we want to be sensitive and create that sense of belonging, we, we might be doing the exact opposite with our approach.
1: Irish people have experienced, and this is in living memory, this isn't sort of hundreds of years ago, explicit discrimination in the workplace, in, 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 all, in all aspects of society, even we're talking here, but also in the U.S., as well and so i think historically irish people have been on the receiving end of microaggressions and when we're thinking of microaggressions the thing about microaggressions they're very difficult to define and to recognize it's it's the type of thing that can be passed off as no it's all in your own mind so if someone if someone was talking You know, if if you're the only Irish person in an environment and then you find that people are talking in a particular way about Irish people, perhaps isolating you, and it can be talked away. It can be, no, no, it's all in your mind. They just, if that person's been to Ireland or that person's got Irish friends or whatever. and But some of the stereotypes come out, right? So it can be really, really challenging. The thing I find really interesting, and this kind of brings us on the way towards race and racism, in particular because normally when people talk about microaggressions they're talking about race and racism if you think about race it's a it's something that's very difficult to define we're not really i i find academics in particular and all the research they don't spend a lot of time talking about the issue they they talk about the meanings associated with it but here's the thing for me, why I think it's very important and interesting about race, particularly about being white and whiteness. Yeah. Um, if you look at the experiences of Irish people, there's there's an argument that Irish people only became white in the past hundred years. Right. Only became white in the past hundred years. So maybe some people who are listening are thinking, what, what are you talking about? Right, white. It's more. It's useful, and this brings us to the white fragility book that you know we were talking about before. Um, it's useful to think of whiteness as a property or a quality, not not as a physical um, phenotype. Right. So remember when we're talking about surface level diversity, try not to think of it as that. Think of it as almost like a quality that some people have. You can achieve this concept of whiteness over time. Now, this will make sense to people who are Irish, because if you look at the treatment of people who were Irish over hundreds of years, yeah, let's say ethnically Irish, historically, you know, Gaelic and everything else, and gone to, gone to the US, come to England, and the tr- the actual experience has been very different from people who were considered to be white in that country. Why does this matter? Because when we think about racism, it's useful to think about it as a system of advantage. So less about individual discrimination and more as a system. And so if you believe this, this is a useful way to think about it. It's by Wellman, I've got his book up here somewhere. So if it's a system of advantage, it means that people uh, gain advantages based on the race that they belong to or they are deemed to belong to. And so there's a racial hierarchy and the argument is people who are white are at the top and we could argue that people who are Black at the bottom and then th- there's variations in between. And so when you hear people talking about racism as a system, this is gener- generally what they mean. So getting back to this idea about being Irish, if you're Irish, you weren't at the top of that pyramid. And over time, and you can say the same thing about people who are Greek, people who are, who are Italian, yeah. they've acquired whiteness. But if you look at 50 years, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, um, they weren't considered to be white. They weren't treated as if they were white. And when I talk about whiteness, I mean it as a property, not a physical feature. Now, the reason all of this matters is because there's an element of empathy, right? Because mm. some of the experiences that people who are, who are um, recent, recent arrivals to Ireland. They may be having that in the workplace. There may be people who are not white Irish who are experiencing uh, discrimination in the workplace. This is something that is not unfamiliar to um, the Irish workplace psyche. Th- does this make sense, William?
0: Yeah, it makes sense. And before we start recording the podcast, this is what we were coming to is is when people arrive into Ireland, then is how are they treated in the workplace? Is it that we assimilate or is it that your point that you were making is is integrate and i'd like to explore that a little with you for our listeners then is what's the difference between assimilation and integration sure
1: it's useful to think of culture as once again we're never going to agree on what culture means okay but it's useful to think of culture well the question is how do we change the culture That's what people are really saying. How do we make it more inclusive? Or some people are thinking we don't like the way the culture is changing. How do we manage that? And so this idea of assimilation means that if we've got a culture, a cultural identity or an organization identity. So, in fact, think of your workplace. Think of your workplace for anybody who's listening. An assimilation approach to culture means that anyone who joins has to fit in with the culture that exists. This implies that the culture is fixed or it's established and you need to get on and fit in. You, you assimilate to a particular norm, particular beliefs, values, behaviours. Now, the challenge with that is some people can fit in more easily than others, seem to be the heroes of the organisation. Every organisation has got a hero story, right? Right. Even on, in your team, there's a hero in your team and everyone's trying to act like that person. The culture is probably built around those types of people, right? That's the assimilation model. Integration is now what is basically where we are now around diversity and inclusion because assimilation is all about so-called equality fitting into one thing. Diversity says that actually we all remember what I said, we have differences and there are values. There is value in those differences. Integration means that we need to recognize because these individuals have differences and there is value in them, we want to keep that. But we've got a culture that has to evolve in order to incorporate these new individuals. And so this is is called acculturation. It's how cultures change. You may hear people say, culture changes from the leaders. It's all the leaders down. That's one way of thinking about it. I don't agree because look at what happened In 2020, look at the way organisations were forced to respond, specifically about race and racism. They felt as if they had to do that. That wasn't the leaders who wanted to do that. That was the people. That was the employees who said, actually, we need to change. Why aren't you talking about this? So it's not always this simple bottom down approach. Consultants will tell you that because consultants get paid to speak with the leaders right that that's why they always go for that that leadership approach acculturation is is really difficult to manage it's really difficult to handle, and to some extent, you have to decide and maybe this is something that all the listeners can think about. What approach are you using right now? Is it an assimilation approach or is it an integration approach
0: and that brings me to you were talking about where d n i initiatives you know, fail, you know, and you talked about your Bristol framework. Did I get that right? Bristol. Yes. I I went to university at Bristol. So
1: I've got this framework around it. We can pick a couple to talk about. And um, do you know what? If if your listeners really want, I can create a pack, which we can, you know, have as a link in the show. And uh, I've got a, I've basically got an episode of the podcast that relates to each of these things. So We call it in in, we call it the seven common mistakes that organizations make on their inclusion journey. And we call it Bristol. Um, I used to have other names for it, but Bristol helps me to remember it. And so it's I'll pick a few of them out. The number one thing. And you hear me talking about this. You see it on social media. I talk about it with organizations is about the business case. You've heard people say the business case for diversity has been established. Now, the truth is it hasn't been established in the way that you've been led to believe. People talk about the McKinsey report and talk about all these other reports, and they say that increase in diversity leads to increased profits. Um, If you actually look at what the research says... The the research that people cite, it actually doesn't say that. The McKinsey report says that there's a correlation, but there's no causation. So they know that they're related, but they don't know which one causes which. Suppose it did say that. In fact, the body of research that's been produced around diversity, equity and inclusion shows that it's inconclusive. We cannot conclusively say that diversity creates um, increased profits, increased product, all of these things. We can't say it produces that consistently over time, so the B in Bristol stands for the business case. People rely on a generic business case for diversity, what I've just discussed instead of finding their own business case. So I do think if there is a business case for diversity in your organization, you need to find that for yourself that's why we're here, that's why William's here here, actually helping you as individuals, to find that for yourself. And the thing I always say, it's important to find a business case for diversity because if you don't find one for yourself, one will be found for you. An example could be supplier. If one of your your clients decides that they want to introduce a policy that says, um, all of our suppliers now need to have an established diversity program, they need to do X, Y, and Z, that means they're now telling you what you need to do. That's your business case for diversity because if you don't meet that criteria, maybe you don't get that client anymore. Maybe that destroys your entire 50%, 60% of your revenue stream. That becomes an issue. That's just an example of the business case. Um, Let me pick another one. The other obvious one, R stands for reputation and credibility indicators. Organizations spend more time on their reputation and looking good instead of actually focusing on the problem itself. So a great example, I'll take 2020. It's, you know, we all remember how disruptive that was. Organizations, they saw, their employees saw what happened in the US. Um, Black Lives Matter, we're in the pandemic. The whole idea about race, racism, and eventually diversity and inclusion became really important. So what did organizations do? They said, we're anti-racist they said that race they called out racism if we see it anywhere you know it's, it has no place in our organization they said all these things some of them threw money uh, uh, mm-hmm. at charities and all these other things all, all that's in, we can talk about that later but these were all credibility indicators a year later if we go back to those organizations and say are you anti-racist what have you done regarding race specifically what have you done around diversity, inclusion, equity, equality? Whatever words you use in your organization, how much further along are you? Apart from saying we're on a journey, what's actually happened? Organizations spend more time on social media writing these statements than actually doing the work. So these are two of the seven common mistakes that organizations make. We can, as I said, I'll yeah. create a pack and we can send the rest to anybody who's interested.
0: Included in that pack is intervention. You know, are you placing your hope on one single intervention? So I, I like that. You know, um, do you rely on common sense to an evidence based approach? And I think that goes back to the business case, doesn't it? Is it, you, you, you have to have evidence based decisions to say, listen, here's the context. Is there, are we focusing on market diversification? Is it talent acquisition? Then we can correlate. To profits, then to say, listen, did this intervention actually make sense to work? And this is the 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 time then involved as well. So that's the t, one size fits all. This is the thing, isn't it? We're too reliant on generic business cases, and then the leaders, a bit like that point that you said earlier before about focusing only on senior leaders, when actually it's the entire organization. You know it all, William.
1: You've got it all there. You've got it all.
0: Oh, well, I'm only reading from your notes. I'm quite good at leveraging you. I'm only, I'm only uh, leveraging your, your work. And that brings us to mind, then, when we think about the organization as a whole, then, is principles of organizational justice. And a part of that, then, is you encourage people to think about procedural justice and you're building on, on top of the work of uh, Leventel. So can you tell me about those six rules when it comes to procedural justice? I really like this part of organizational behavior. I talk about this all the time. So if you can let our listeners know a little bit about that, especially in the workplace, and where it can be applied.
1: Yeah, so if we take a step back, so procedural justice, why should we even care about it? What does it mean? Most people talk about, with all this diversity equity everyone really says that we want the workplace to be fair I want to be treated fairly I want you to be treated fairly we want everybody to be treated fairly very few people argue with that principle right and so fairness once again is quite ambiguous so as you said talking about OB as you know I've got an OB background organizational behavior the idea of organizational justice becomes really useful and so And procedural justice is, there's procedural justice, there's distributive justice, there's interactive justice. But procedural justice is the one that um, I find the most practical. And so as an exercise, let's get everybody to think about a particular rule that they have in the organization, whether it's about recruitment, think about something that actually affects you. And so this researcher, Leventhal, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it properly because I've only ever read it, the, the name, right? We came up with six rules, six rules. And the idea is the procedure. If you think of a procedure, how do you send an email? How do you present a report? How do you hire someone? Yeah, How do you fire someone? Think of a procedure that you personally have been involved with. Then the real question is, if it meets these six criteria, then it is fair. You will think that there's procedural justice. If we break any of these six, then it's unfair. And then we've got the six. I've written them down as well because I talk about them, but I don't always remember them. So the first one is consistency. So are the rules consistent across time, different departments, different individuals? So if we've got two people going through the same process were the rules apply to them in a consistent way, if not, then it means there's it lacks procedural justice. That's something that most people could get behind and understand. The next thing we've got is bias suppression. This is probably one that that gets missed. Suppose there's bias or I'm biased about. So here's an example. So I'm a a chartered accountant and I I have been for years, right? Now, to become a chartered accountant, I, I joined the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales only because they came to my university and said, hey, you should you should be you should join this group i went to remember i already told you i went to the university of bristol if i'd gone to you know these post 1995 universities somewhere like south bank university the institute of chartered accountants didn't go there they and now they're talking about how they want more diversity they didn't go there they and it was the acca who would go to universities like that so in terms of bias there's bias built into the system about who joins And the procedure of getting new members is inherently biased. Now, it doesn't appear that way if you just went to that university, but in fact, it is. So is there bias built in? Decisions, and by the way, it will feel completely normal. That's the thing. It will feel completely normal. What kind of bias is in the system, in the process? If you have that, then it's not fair. The other thing is correctability. What if it's unfair? Are you able to change the rules? If you've got rules that simply cannot be changed, and this is the rule, no matter what, it's not fair. If you've got a rule that actually promotes injustice, 100% it's not fair. And if you can't change it, it's definitely not fair. That's a real problem. We're supposed to be evolving our organizations, our departments, our teams. We need to be able to change when things are wrong. So that's the third one. Then we've got um, accuracy. Is it accurate? Are you actually making decisions or is the process driven? Think of it as a black box. You know, rubbish in, rubbish out, they say. So, do you have useful, accurate information going in? If you're making decisions based on information that's inaccurate, you're, it's not going to be fair. If you find out that actually the smartest people who apply for this job come from this neighborhood or this university, if that's just simply not true, it's going to harm your business. And then we've got ethicality, which is probably, you know, I'm hoping that most people who listen to this show could take that for granted. Is it an ethical rule? inherently does it meet the standards your standards the standards of society the standards of your organization there may be a conflict between any of those three um if that's if that's not the case it's not fair and then representativeness and that word representative is thrown around a lot Hmm. representativeness rule says are the people who are subject to the rule um, impacted by the rule, yeah, influenced by the rule, the process, are they represented in the process decision-making itself? If not, there's a great chance that it's going to be unfair. So let's, let's get a practical example of that. What, what's, what's a sort of issue that would be relevant to your listeners? we
0: would say, for example, hiring practices. Hiring practices.
1: All right, here's, here's an obvious one then let's say we want to promote more women in in a particular into a particular role or department we find that they're underrepresented because we've got accurate data that tells us right yeah that they're underrepresented in this area and we want to promote more women in this into this space would it be useful to actually engage and have women represented in the process the answer is yes and this is the thing you've got people making decisions about things they have no idea about and the people who are most informed are often excluded from that process so it's not only does it not make sense but it's actually according to Leventhal unfair it it violates a rule of procedural justice so I really like that as well It's, it's something everybody who's listening to this can actually look at something in their workplace now today and make these judgments about if it's if it's unfair and by the way these Real nice human principles. It's really difficult to argue with these. They sound quite generic, but when you apply them specifically in your organization, they're really powerful. It's, it's a real big takeaway that I recommend.
0: And that notion of discrimination then could be age, could be gender, you know, it could be race, you know, loads of, of different things. And and I, I like when you talk about the bias suppression rule. You know, your experience with the ICA is really that primacy effect, isn't it? It's that availability uh, bias. So there's a little bit of critical thinking here. Mm-hmm. And I really like, you know, the accuracy rule, of that information hygiene, well, you know, rubbish in, rubbish out. This is what we, we need to, and this goes back to that evidence-based research and evidence-based decision-making. Actually, William, can I jump in for a second,
1: please? Yeah. Um, on this point about evidence-based, I, I want to draw that out a bit because... When we say evidence-based, that, that approach is based on uh, like medical practitioners, nursing. So when we say evidence-based, it's not just about collecting data from here or there. Hmm. It's, you need to collect data from four different areas. So one is the academic literature. You're a fan of OB, so you're looking at the literature. The example we just gave about um, procedural justice is based on academic literature. You can put it into practice. So you need to look there. The other thing is to look at data from your organization specifically. You create the data, you find the data. So that's two forms of evidence. The third is from you, your professional experience, your own judgments, your own thoughts. What do you think? Because you have value as well. You're able to provide evidence into your decision-making process. And then the fourth one is from stakeholders. Now, depending on whatever context we're talking about, you need to decide, who are the most relevant stakeholders. But when we say evidence-based approach, that is what they mean. That, or that's a more useful way to think about it. It's difficult. It takes a lot more work. It can be quite challenging, but it's, it's really useful. I was I was reintroduced to this um, by uh, Professor Rob Brenner. Really, it's really interesting. I, I recommend everybody explore this as part of any sort of management decision-making process takes longer but you find that your decisions um, are more rigorous
0: we actually have a podcast on critical thinking with david robert grimes and this is what he talks about is that four sources of information so i'm glad you brought that up and again you know we started about culture and we talked about i suppose race and discrimination and microaggressions and that brings me to the point is if we witness racial slurs in the workplace how do we navigate that so say for example it wasn't a good actor it was a bad actor that you witness how do you handle that within the workplace there's a lot of people going to go i don't know i don't know how to handle that i wish i could do more you know and then they're kind of going well if i'm silent and complicit so now they're kind of going what do we do so yeah so i'd like to address that if that's okay
1: this, this relates to a, a research paper and a show, and I know you, you've seen me talk about this, about why racial slurs are, are prevalent in, in organisations, why are they still prevalent? And a large part of that, uh, the, the punchline is, is that people allow them, so bystanders, observers, allow racial slurs, or any type of slur I would imagine, to continue unchallenged. And and this is the challenge. That research paper was quite controversial because actually what it said was some of the people who were observing the racial slurs were benefiting from that person being discriminated. So that, that was a real dark side ending to that. And I know that's not what you were meaning or thinking about at all. It's related to your culture. Suppose you see that if someone feels comfortable making racial slurs in the workplace, chances are your culture accommodates that or this person feels that they're protected enough so you really need to change the overall culture anyway but specifically mm-hmm. in that because let's say you observe that in that specific environment you, you can't say oh well now we're going to change the culture what do you do I would say it depends on the specific circumstances it also depends on power doesn't it if you are a senior person if you have long tenure if you are a manager and you let that happen that's completely unacceptable yeah. but you could also imagine someone who's really young um, or new to an organization not feeling that they've got the confidence to confront the person i definitely think you should speak to someone who you trust to to say something or at least even say i i'm not comfortable i think that was wrong if you feel comfortable doing that because they, i do come across people who do observe injustice and because and this is the thing as a threat to their own position they don't feel comfortable enough to say anything so I'm loath to tell everybody to do the brave thing because it's very easy to say, we're here on a podcast say, talking about it. And some people say, yeah, that sounds great, but I have to go to work the next day. And maybe you live, in, you live somewhere where there's not that many jobs and this person's got a particular level of power over you, over your career. And so you might not be able to say anything. But overall, I think if people are using racial slurs in the workplace, it's indicative of a culture that encourages that. You as an individual should always try i' say try to do the right thing to the greatest extent that you can speak to an authority, someone you trust who can help if that doesn't work um, that is an issue because we can talk about going to HR are they is it going to be a case of and once again i'm saying I'm speaking ahead because I've actually engaged with people who have engaged with HR and nothing happens and it's and that's particularly devastating because of all these, we're not racist, we're anti-racist, we call out racism. If if you have a statement that says we call out racism, then call out racism. I would put it to the test to the greatest extent that you feel comfortable.
0: And slurs can happen in different forms, gender slurs or sexual orientation or whatever. So it's just general good advice. And I like what you said there is that I'm not comfortable with this. And that's a form of stating at least you're not silent.
1: But I do I do really want to draw attention to the fact that there are people who have power in these particular circumstances who can and should, and they know who they are, they can and should say something. It's the people who lack the power in any of these contexts who are the ones who are really who are really having this struggle. So what I'm really saying is if you have the power, you should call it out immediately, loud. Yeah. I'm trying to be more sympathetic for the people who don't in that environment. Yeah. And I think that really matters. And it's also worth noting, racial slurs or any type of slur, just say overt forms of discrimination, they're quite rare. It does happen. It's not as common. You you, spoke earlier about the microaggressions and things like that. Those are the things that happen. Those are the things that are common. You turn up to an office and you can see that no one's really expecting it's you. I turn up to an office and people are surprised I've got a PhD. I turn up to an office, people are surprised I'm an accountant. These are all subtle microaggressions or people want to double check your work, micromanage your work. People not sure, you know, they don't believe some of your your references or they double check your references. These are all forms of that. Subtle, they're subtle forms of discrimination. They're covert, the overt forms of discrimination in the 21st century, thank God they're not as common as we would expect or, or have experienced previously.
0: I'm just so curious that all these subtle forms are happening, those microaggressions. These are things that I wouldn't have been informed about or, or aware of that actually uh, happens. So a lot of times when there's questions there, would you ask the same question if they came from a different background? Exactly that. Would you have asked that? And that speaks
1: to... prejudice it speaks to bias and we need to check for those things constantly and we say that but that's that's like a generic statement isn't it i need to check my privilege i need to check for the how do you actually do it i think to some extent we have to expose ourselves to different ideas different ideas and different behaviors that we wouldn't normally choose now it's easy to say that because we wouldn't normally choose it we don't want to do it and i i made a post about this is that there's a risk we have to take risks Reading things that we wouldn't normally read, speaking to people we wouldn't normally speak to, you know, risk changing your mind, changing your ideas the way you think. Now, it's uncomfortable. It can be a real hassle, but there's a bigger risk in not doing that. And so you can start by, you know, listening to a podcast, or reading a book, speaking to someone, uh, watching something on TV that, you know, I would never go for that. Give it a go. You might learn something different, but often, and this is the thing, trying to engage with people who have got completely different perspectives, but are in your organisation would be a really useful place to start.
0: And I would wholeheartedly agree with that. Even watching a different movie on Netflix could make a world of difference to change, um, I suppose, your horizon, your perspective. And that brings me to mind of the future of D&I. Where do you think it is now, where do you think it needs to be at? So
1: I'd say for the past few years, it's been the Wild West. So all of this started really in the 80s, late 80s. There's a really famous book, uh, no publication called Workforce 2000, talking about how the workplace of the 21st century, year 2000, was going to be very different. And that really kicked off the interest and coined the terms diversity and inclusion. I'd say it hasn't more in the US. This is from my perspective. Things were happening. 100% in the past five years, it increased, but diversity meant gender. So, you know, we had, um, you know, the 30% Club, we've got the Equality Act 2010, which means that organizations with more than 250 people have to report their gender pay gaps, um, if there are any, right? So all of these things drew a lot of attention to gender. 2020 very much pushed race, at the front of the agenda so Mm -hmm. but organizations they're thinking about gender they're thinking about race now they've realized actually we need to really understand and grasp what diversity and inclusion means here and now i still think it's quite performative and when i say performative i mean focusing on what it looks like as opposed to what it actually is it's attracted a lot of people some don't necessarily and you could say this about any industry don't necessarily have the right values, even the competence, expertise. So there's a lot of people, like I think there's been so many jobs for diversity and inclusion leaders. The challenge is, unlike many disciplines, the people hiring you don't even know what a good version of what you're doing looks like. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real issue. So I'm going to hire someone for a job I don't understand for outcomes I can't conceive. It's an issue. And people aren't as informed as they'd like to be. When I finished my PhD, it was five years ago, actually, about two years, two weeks ago, it was about five five years I got my PhD. And I came into the market thinking, oh, I've got all these ideas I really want to share. I want to contribute. I want to work with organizations. And then I realized that the bar was quite low in the UK in particular. And it was also, it wasn't very inclusive. People hired their friends. The people who were there didn't actually know that much. You had people who with deep knowledge, deep expertise, had been overlooked for years. Now, there's a greater interest. I think within the next 18 months, and actually, no, I've said this previously, but then we had the pandemic. I think we're getting to the point where people need to start producing results. If you work in diversity and inclusion, you could get two jobs, three jobs in five years and not actually do much. You just get a new job and a new job. I think that's going to end soon. I think we're going to have organizations. There's going to be some high profile failures as always. Someone's going to make do or say something really stupid or inherently stupid or offensive and in in a consumer facing organization. And then that means, you know, people are going to choose not to to buy. But I think specifically around diversity and inclusion, we're going to get more data and, people are going to be held to account. I thought that was going to happen in 2021. It hasn't really. I think it's going to happen moving forward. We, we also have to remember that some of the diversity, as in hiring people who are from different backgrounds, that's going to be outsourced. So let's talk about Ireland. You, you've got an organisation, maybe you've got 100 people, and everyone everyone lives in the town that you're from. Or pick a town. Where, where are you now, William? I would like to say I'm in Galway, but I'm not. I'm in Dublin. You're in Dublin. Okay. So we're in, you're in Dublin. We're going to hire people in Dublin. We want our team to broadly look like Dublin, right? As a percentage. And we want to make sure. So we're thinking about that. Now, the pandemic has shown that we can live anywhere. We can work anywhere. So what? What does? Uh, what should our team look like? What if the next 50 hires are actually from outside of Ireland, outside of Europe? What does that look like? What does that mean for diversity? So I think a lot of organizations are going to fix their diversity issue by um, hiring or outsourcing, however you want to describe it, people who are just in a completely different geographical location. Um, that's going to have some implications as well for the actual teams and uh, the workforce in, let's say, Dublin, for example.
0: Yeah. And why I like your LinkedIn posts and your newsletter, you're all about disrupting the status quo. It's really about focusing on the issues, engaging in more activities and, and really doing the work. And I know you're a voracious reader. You have a book club. You read, you're a bit like myself. You, you tend to read around a book a week or something like that. What I'd like to do is, is give you an opportunity just in that book club. Is there kind of any books that we, you would recommend our listeners before your own book comes out, obviously? Of course. But, yeah. So what books would be useful for our listeners to maybe dip into?
1: Okay, that's great. So do you know what I like? I like, have you ever heard the term Lindy books? Lindy's was a restaurant in New York. I I don't know if it's still there anymore. And apparently all the the comedians used to go there. It's off Broadway. They used to go there after the shows and they used to share um, jokes. And, you know, they were sharing what works and principles. And the idea was, it was this idea of excellence. And what they found was the longer a joke had been around, the more likely it was to have been useful. Right. And so a Lindy book is a book that's been around for a really long time that has got principles that you're going to find everyone else. And so the the idea is, if it's been around for 20 years, it's going to be around for another 20 years. If -hmm. it's been around for 1,000 years, it's going to be around for another 1,000 years. So I like Lindy books, okay? So instead of always focusing on the new books, and of course, we always need them, what are some of the classic, older, maybe even books everyone else is ignoring that you can get huge wins from? So you're going to be surprised that the books I'm going to suggest... Um, it won't be obvious. So number one is a book called American Islamophobia. American Islamophobia. You probably didn't expect me to say that.
0: I did actually, because I saw it before your LinkedIn oh, you seen it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that book is so underrated, right? Um, it's Yes, it talks about Islamophobia, but by reading that book, you understand so many other things. And it makes you realize that as Islamophobia isn't once again about individual acts of discrimination against People or one person, there's a whole system and there's legal frameworks in there. It's surprising. It's written by a a legal professor in the US, American Islamophobia. The other one is Disability, the Basics. That book completely changed the way I thought about disability. And you're going to find, by the way, when you read American Islamophobia and Disability, the Basics, you're going to see some parallels there that you just would not have expected. This is when you know you're on the right track. It's like, wow. And, and, and take your time to read them, right? And these are really easy, readable books. That one's by, is it Professor Tom Shakespeare? By the way, these books are written, they're not like, oh, academic books. They're written for that anyone could read and understand them. Very easy reads. Uh, disability, the basics is actually more like a load of papers. It makes you look at the nature of disability. So the idea that society makes people disabled, yet yeah, it treats them in a particular way that means that they're disabled it just makes it's, it's unbelievable I, I found it so powerful I was like wow wow and just just the the community and uh, around um people with disabilities and that's the phrase that's the term that I use because I took it from yeah. from that book those two books
0: really really useful Thank you so much for those recommendations. And we're coming to the end of our podcast now. And it has been so insightful for me and our listeners. Thank you so much. What I'd like to do is give you an opportunity now. If people were to find more about you or how would they contact you, please let us know.
1: So as you said, the best way to contact me, there's probably three, three things, three things, maybe four, we'll see. So number one, every day on LinkedIn, I post Every weekday, I post something, an insight, something to help you on your inclusion journey. I say I'm on a mission to help a million people like you. One of the ways I do that is on LinkedIn. So find me there, Twitter as well. Um, I also have a podcast. It's called The Element of Inclusion. Every week, we inform and educate using applied research, thought leadership, and we've got five types of show. We do explainers, book reviews that I've just talked about. We do research breakdowns, opinion pieces, and interviews from time to time, not so much recently. Um, If you really want to get some insider tips, I've just started a newsletter. I've got a newsletter on LinkedIn, and we'll we'll, we'll have a pack or something. I'll I'll send a link, but um, I've got a newsletter, which is where I share the bits that I can't talk about elsewhere i find social media is great i think it's very powerful but it's not always a safe space for people to discuss if you had a really a question that you thought was really basic you might not feel comfortable talking about it i also share things that i share with my clients my wins my fails so check out my newsletter my private newsletter and um you'll get something from me every week and then of course the book club which is actually now related to to the private newsletter. But yeah, we'll, we'll have a pack for you. Check out that pack and um, please engage. I'm always interested, always want to learn, particularly about more about the Irish um, work culture elements. I really want to know more.
0: Dr. Jonathan Ashon Lampty, thank you so much for joining the Workplace Podcast. Congratulations on your five year PhD anniversary. <laughs> and that's all we have time for today.
1: Thank you, William. Thank
0: you for having me. Thank you for indulging me, everyone. That's it for this episode of the Workplace Podcast. My special thanks to this week's guest for a wonderful discussion. If you want to get in contact with a podcast about a workplace topic or a particular challenge that you're facing, contact me via Twitter at different paths. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, William Corless C-O-R-L-E-S-S, or go to my website, www.yellowwood.ie. Yellowwood your external learning and development partner. Provide your executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organisation.